Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected. To all who shall see these presents, greetings. On behalf of Marine Corps University, the Marine Corps University Foundation, and the Brute Krulak Center for Innovation and Future Warfare, welcome back to the Brutecast. Our series designed to connect the worlds of the warfighter and PME with the best in innovative and creative thought. I'm your host, Major Nate Janikin, Operations Officer at the Krulak Center. Before we begin, please remember that all opinions expressed here are those of the individual and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Krulak Center, Marine Corps University, United States Marine Corps, or any other agency of the U.S. government. We will also be recording this webcast for the benefit of those in our community of interest who could not join us today, so we ask that you keep your own webcams off to help us stream smoothly. At the conclusion of our discussion, we will have a question and answer session. So if you have a question, just type it in the group chat. And I'll go through them in the order received. So in 2010, the Department of Veteran Affairs issued a report on suicides amongst veterans. This is the report that produced the 22 in a day statistic that we see around. Uh, this report came from data that included only 21 of the 50 states. It also only included three of the top uh, 10 most populated at the time. Uh, and only one of those was even in the top five. So this statistic is most likely higher. Suicide rates in the United States have been declining since 2018, and an updated version of this report was released in 2022. And it reports 31.7 suicides per 100,000 US veterans, which is still 14 a day. Uh, and everyone has struggles, and your struggles will look different than others, but they are still yours. Learning to recognize and cope with these challenges will not make them go away. However, you can learn from them, and instead of reacting in a negative way, can respond in a positive one. And this is post-traumatic growth, drawing strength and purpose from tragedy and trauma. So this is kind of a little bit of a different episode than what we've done in the past, where we focused on warfighting or other functions. But this is focused more on uh, taking care of the warfighter, either during, while they are a warfighter or afterwards. Uh, so with me, uh, my guest is uh, Mr. Chris Jackson. He was raised in East Texas. Uh, and his Marine Corps career spanned 27 years as a reserve enlisted Marine and an active duty officer. He active in, actively participated in Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm, multiple tours in Operation Iraqi Freedom, and in Operation Enduring Freedom. He was privileged to command or serve at the platoon through Marine Expeditionary Force levels. And during his military career, Chris has also served with Infantry Training Battalion East, OCS, the Joint Improvised Explosive Device Defeat Organization, and he led operations at the Security Cooperation Education and Training Center, uh, assisting and training partner nation militaries. After retiring, he served as the chief of operations at a counter-human trafficking nonprofit organization, facilitating the rescue of 620 victims from modern slavery in the Middle East and Indo-Pacific region. And currently, he is serving as the program director of the Warrior Path, or the progressive and alternative training for helping heroes at the Sheepdog Impact Assistance. Uh, sir, so welcome. Appreciate it. Thank you. Like to see if you had any uh, opening thoughts before we begin. Uh, it really is just to to begin the discussion uh, with regard to um, you know what it means to go from struggling to struggling well, and understanding what it is because a lot of us have never been taught that before, and so that really is what uh, the conversation uh, is about today. Great. Uh, so I think it would be really smart to start with because uh, the first time I'd ever ever heard the term uh, post traumatic growth was in the initial conversations that we had together. Uh, so how is that different than post-traumatic stress? And why are we now having, or not now, I'm sure it's a conversation we've had for a while, but you know, why are we having that conversation vice, uh, you know, a PTSD conversation? Sure, yeah, and great question, by the way. And so, I mean, most people know what post-traumatic stress is, right? Everybody knows what PTSD is. And 
the the thing about uh, post-traumatic growth is is the coin or the term was coined about 35 years ago uh, by two professors in um, the, the University of North Carolina in Charlotte, uh, Dr. Richard Tedeschi, Dr. Lawrence Cal Calhoun, and these two individuals began to look at um, you know basically lessons learned uh, from survivors of the Holocaust, the um, adults who had come out to late onset disabilities or had lost young children. And they also came upon um, the information, the studies that had been done on the POWs from the Hanoi Hilton. And so these people had been through a tremendous amount of trauma, but yet they were able to go through and thrive in their life. And so what they did was studies, well, how, it, how is it that they went through and did this? And so what you're really seeing is there's a lot of people, I think, who believe out there or are told that PTSD is basically a, a terminal diagnosis. In other words, once you have PTSD, you, you've got it from now on. And that's just not the case, right? Once you discover what uh, post-traumatic growth is and what it can do, it really is the other side of the story, right? It is learning, being one being educated and trained on what it means to go from struggling poorly to being uh, to struggling well and the practices and everything that goes along with that. Yeah, and one of the things, so one of the books that you had brought up, uh, and I have a copy here, you can't see it on the screen since we don't have video, but uh, Struggle Well, so Thriving in Aftermath of, of Trauma, and they bring up uh, the Hanoi Hilton, they have a, an intro from uh, Captain Charlie Plum, who was a U.S. Navy uh, fighter pilot in Vietnam, uh, and spent six years uh, in the Hanoi Hilton. Um, they talk a lot about uh, mental fitness, mm -hmm. Uh, and being able to kind of, you have to start with with yourself. One of the things I was thinking of is, you know, because they talk a lot about, you know, training to be able to, you know, find your path. Is there a reason why folks tend to struggle? You know, we, we come from a very regimented, structured lifestyle when we're active, but then as we go outside the military and we lose that structure, you know, why aren't we able, why aren't folks able to keep kind of that same uh, mentality almost uh, there's you know most likely a lot of different reasons for that you know some of them people get out for a lot of different reasons uh, whatever that may be um, but you know really what you're looking at is you lose that structure there's a grief process right that people go through whenever they get out uh, with varying different levels for, for everybody that is out there but and it affects people differently um, and so depending on, you know, where they are with regard to, you know, going through the grief cycle, what it is that they experienced in the military, um, whatever it is, can affect how you then begin to take care of yourself. And a lot of it is, is, you know, just not knowing. I know for me, I didn't understand what that was when I retired and what was, you know, what was going to happen. And probably two to three weeks after, uh, you know, getting moved into where our final location was, uh, I, I really found it hard to start getting out of bed. And I didn't understand why, I didn't know why, and what the deal was uh, there and why I was going through this. And it wasn't until um, I began to work on myself to, you know, was privileged to be able to get in and start doing this work that I began to really understand uh, the depth of what all of it is and, and um, how we actually need to be retrained, right? And how to, to deal with these things that we're gonna experience when we get out.
Yeah, I think they had a, a great example in the book. You know, they called it a, a reactive sine wave. You know, and they, they show a really nice sine wave that's staying within the boundaries. But the, the, the way they equated it in the book was more of like lanes in a road. Like we have rules, uh, you know, for driving, you can change lanes when you need to, but you have to signal while you do it, or you're supposed to signal when you do it. Uh, but you're, you, you want to maintain the vehicle inside those lanes, you know, but you tend to steer outside of those lanes. So, you know, above that sine wave that, you know, anger uh, was one of those elements and then below was depression. So it was really finding the tools to kind of keep you within those sine waves right yeah so i mean essentially what you're talking about is um is you have when you get out there's things that we learn while we're in um and it is everything from you know you mentioned anger right is that hey this is how things get done is you get angry about something and, and make sure that people who get that done or you become completely numb right uh, or the depression basically it's there's that no emotion aspect to it and it's figuring out and getting the practices in place uh, to be able to bring yourself back into those boundaries and bring yourself back into the present. Uh, because when you begin to, when you're dealing with both uh, anger and numbness, a lot of times you're dealing with things that you're either uh, afraid of in the future or you're um, basically referring back to the past and something that happened uh, during that time. So. Uh, and then warrior path. So one of the things that we had talked about was, you know, the difference between, you know, preventative measures and um, inter intervention mm -hmm. methods. Uh, you know, and, and me and my helicopter aviation, you know, we do preventative maintenance in order to make sure that the mm. aircraft doesn't break. But then if, if it does break, we have to do maintenance afterwards. Right. And so that's kind of my idea. So warrior path, what, what exactly is that? Yeah, so, so Warrior Path is the, the intervention side um, of post-traumatic growth, and that's where somebody is already in that, um, you know, whatever their level of maybe crisis mode might be the way to put it, uh, they come to it and we, we work through all these things using um, basically the, the knowledge and the training and the practices of post-traumatic growth in order to help them work through that and realize that they can learn from those things that have happened to them in life, be able to put uh, those lessons in place and grow from it and then from there uh, thrive. So um, that in a, in a quick nutshell is what, what warrior path is, being more the intervention side. So how would a person know if they needed to uh, lean more towards the intervention side or the preventative side? Um, I mean, that, that's going to be individually dependent, right, on, on what's going on there. What I would tell you is that I think everybody could use the preventative side of it. Right. When you begin to look at, um, you know, on active duty, those who are actively serving uh, the stresses that they go through and how this is accumulated, it's, it's important to understand that um, stress, right, accumulates and so does trauma accumulates and everybody um, reacts or responds differently to it. You can have two people who are in the exact same situation and both of them are going to be affected differently from that. One of them may come come out of it with just a little bit of stress or nothing at all. Another person may come out of it and be traumatized by it, right? And there's there's nothing they can do about that because it is it is a natural process that they go through uh, as their uh, those events happen, right? It's it's all part of the a lot of it deals with the autonomic uh, nervous system and how it goes through 
and when you uh, the, as these things accumulate it actually goes into and is stored in your body not just in your mind so that's uh part of the reason why uh, we go through and we talk about practices you know whether it's a breathing technique or whatever it is in order to begin to address not just what is going on mentally but what is going on physically with somebody right as that stuff uh begins to accumulate because um, you know, it can be everything from decision fatigue, you know, when we start talking about trauma and stress and those kind of things, you know, the gamut from going uh, just decision fatigue is like always having to, to make decisions on, you know, as a leader and those kind of things to chronic stress and fatigue. And then, you know, hopefully not ever getting there, but is then, you know, someone taking their life uh, by suicide. Um, so there, there's a lot of different components with regard to this and why I, I believe that uh, bringing this discussion in this form is a good thing because as stress begins to accumulate, why we don't always recognize that that is what is going on with us, and why you know maybe it is that we develop uh, you know stomach aches or irritable you know IBS or whatever it is, or just other things because uh, there's an incredible book out there called. Uh, the body keeps a score, which ex explains a lot of this. Um, but, you know, but the reality is, is that until we have healthy ways in order to release the stress, right, not just release it, but actually delete it out of our system and out of our body, it's going to continue to accumulate. And at some point, your body is going to say enough and something's going to happen, right? And, you know, kind of a and I'll use a, a personal example, a prime example of something that um, uh, just happened, not necessarily to me, but it happened recently. And that was uh, several months ago. Um, I actually retired my, my best friend. 30 years of service, um, you know, multiple deployments, a lot going on, uh, a lot of responsibility. And, you know, retiring, things are looking good, but he was also dealing with you know, just things in life. His father had an illness and he'd had it for five years and this illness that he had affected his lungs and essentially um, it suffocated him to death over the course of five years. Very stressful things going on. Well, about a month after he, uh, after he retired, his father passed away um, and everything that goes along with that. About a week after that, I'm actually out of Warrior Path course about halfway through, and my wife gives me a call and says, hey, um, you know, your friend had, your best friend just had a stroke. And so the, the, essentially um, his wife had woken up in the middle of the night to him actually in a seizure on the side of the bed um, and ended up, you know, the stroke he was in a seizure for an hour, flown to the hospital, um, but it was bad. And it was to the point to where I got on a plane, uh, went there to see what was happening and, and to do what I could. And I arrived about two hours before they had to uh, take him off life support, right? And so what, what had happened, right, is that he had built up so much stress and despite us being at, you know, trying to talk about it and to, to get him to put things in place and to, and to uh, understand these things, um, not doing that, his body accumulated the stress and that's how his body decided to release that stress. You know, it ended up uh, basically destroying, uh, 
you know, part of the uh, vein in his neck and his brainstem and the other and other things. And so, you know, the body will keep the school that's going on until we find a way and we're able to do this right on a regular basis. You know, another kind of quick story is, a, and he's one of my guides, right? One of the instructors at the course that I have, he was law enforcement, actually military and law enforcement for about 30 years. Two weeks after he retired, he's laying in bed and his neck breaks in two places, lies asleep, and then his knees are shot. And so his body was finding a way to finally let go of what was happening and said, okay, I could do this now and release that stress. And so that's why I think that we have got to have a serious discussion about what can we put in place, right, in order to help those who are actively serving to be able to alleviate this stress and to have the knowledge and those kind of things um, as they go through their career or their time of service. And so that's really kind of the ultimate objective when, you know, in the discussion and where we're going and what uh, we'd like to talk about. Yeah, I think one of the ways I've seen that described as well is, uh, you know, if you've ever heard the phrase, um, I don't have the spoons for that. Essentially, it's the idea that I can only handle so much at one time. I can only carry so much water with so many spoons before my hands are full. So if I don't have the spoons for additional things, then I can't take those on. Or if I take it on, I'm going to drop other spoons. I think you know, an example from the book is the rucksack. So as things get added to me, whatever stressors, whether it's good stress, bad stress, those are additional things added to my pack. But eventually, at some point, I've got to stop, unload my pack, and reload my pack so I can distribute the weight better or just straight up remove rocks or gear from mm -hmm. my pack and drop them off on the side of the road. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and that's that's really what, you know, what it is that we're talking about because, you know, at some point, and we do, you know, we use that analogy in our course also is just, you know, at some point you just keep putting stuff in that pack. You can sew it up, you can duct tape it, you continue to do these things. I know it's big rocks, small rocks, whatever it is. And usually it's going to be some small rock that you put put in there and everything just explodes, right? And that's where, where you, you lose it, right? Whatever that means for you or whatever it is that happens. Typically on somebody who didn't really do anything, it just happens to be that last little bit, right? That, uh, that, that sets you over the edge with regard to those things. So. You know, just another reason to to look at why these uh, this knowledge and practices uh, would be beneficial applying it into you know what the education system, the training system, and really become part of uh, the daily life of Marines and sailors uh, that we have. Yeah, I think. Uh... From an active duty standpoint, I, I think there's also an element of uh, machismo almost mm -hmm. of I'm going to continue to do what I have to do because that's like there are folks on my left and right that are requiring I think you know to bring it back to pilots again because that's what mm -hmm. we do uh, the idea of going to the flight dock mm -hmm. was something I never ever wanted to do because I knew that the first thing the flight dock was going to do was going to down me mm -hmm. and all I wanted to do was fly so, you know, you have folks that stay hurt, whether it be mental injuries or physical injuries, and continue to fly because they need to, whether it's safe to do so or not, because there are folks, you know, that they perceive on the left and right 
that need them to continue to do that, really they don't. So mm -hmm. how do we get that message out to folks that it's it's okay to get help? Because I, you know, looking back on the early days of, of PTSD, I feel like that was a lot of the issue was folks weren't willing to ask for help because it was seen as weakness. Mm -hmm. How do we get past that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're you're you know you're talking about the, the stigma aspect and what that means, and so and that's one of the reasons why I think really beginning to talk about this in the aspect of mental fitness, right? You brought that up at the very beginning, is because so when you look at what we do for physical fitness, right? Physical fitness is an integrated part of everything that we do. We we train people up, you know, in their initial training. They're expected to work out on a regular basis. You do unit PT, we have PFTs, we have CFTs, all these things to ensure that our Marines and sailors are physically fit in order to be able to go do the jobs that we need them to do, right? But when we begin to talk about mental fitness, right, there, there at least what I've seen, there's nothing there. And there's multiple, you know, potentially multiple reasons uh, that this exists, but why wouldn't we think that you have to work out yourself in a mental way as well as you do in a physical way, right? So being physically fit is, uh, or mentally fit is different than just having the knowledge and the training on all those aspects with regard to, uh, you know, what you learn in order to do the operations you need to do. Mental fitness is about building the strength and capacity of you mentally and then also physically to be able to deal with the stresses that you're going to deal with in the professional arms. Okay, so, you know, part of this is, is there's, I think, this underlying assumption that occurs that because somebody's gone through initial training, right, whether it's boot camp, OCS, whatever it is, they are then mentally capable, right, have this, both the strength and capacity from a mental standpoint to deal with all the stress and the rigors that's going to be asked of them during their time of service. And that's just, I don't think, reality, right? They you've gone through some stressful things and what those are, but have you been taught how to deal with the stress in a, a long and enduring point, right? These, and also like these spikes, whatever it may be with that, you know, potentially traumatic things that occur with you uh, during your time of service. And so we, we don't do that. And so going through and looking at um, how we begin to talk about this from a mental fitness aspect, right? And it's because what we're talking about and when you look at, you know, struggle well and, uh, and warrior path is all about self-care, right? The ability to take care of myself, to put in, uh, to use that knowledge and education that I have through practices and other things to build that strength and capacity that we're talking about and to have the self-awareness, right? To know when I need to do that and when I need to use these and to putting, putting those things in place. So it's part of my routine that I, I'm growing just like I would physically, right? I can't expect to go lift, you know, bench 300 pounds at the, uh, at the gym if I only go in once a month, right? It's something I have to go lift on a daily basis. And so why wouldn't I think that in order to expand our mental uh, strength and capacity, we wouldn't need to be doing something on a daily basis also, right? So, and the interesting thing is, is, is when you begin to look at, um, you know, what, you know, potentially what this looks like, or even within the Marine Corps orders, the framework and the thought process for this actually already exists. When you look at uh, Marine Corps Order 1720.2 Alpha, 
it actually says this. Um, let's see, so basically create a command or foster command climate that supports and promotes mental, physical, spiritual, and social fitness, right? And so basically teaching healthy stress reactions, cultivating mental, physical, spiritual, and social fitness as a cultural norm, right? In other words, how do we go through and, and make uh, mental fitness a cultural norm? Well, we have to put the emphasis on it to the point to where it becomes as ingrained in, you know, our warrior culture as something like physical fitness or professional military education. It all has to be part of that because, you know, what, what has been occurring up to this point, you know, when you begin to look at, say, suicide prevention, those kind of things, how well is it working for us right now? Right? You know, is it, you know, can you really, there are a lot of great things that were put in place, right? That were needed to be put in place, but it's now, I think, time to have that next level of discussion to open up the aperture a little bit to where, where do we take it from here? So that what we're actually allowing people to do is to get rid of that stress on their own, right? Uh, understanding and having the awareness of when they need to do that so that they never actually get to, or hopefully ever, ever get, or get to that point of crisis where intervention is needed. So that is, I think, the, the ultimate objective and goal with regard to what we're talking about. Because when you, when it's integrated into the entire training continuum, instead of, oh, I've got to go see, you know, the, the therapist today, you know, that's when the stigma uh, begins to go away, right? Because it, it's not, um, there's no stigma attached to, to being a warrior and to training a warrior because the practices and things that we're looking at are things that warriors have done um, throughout history. Right? These are not new things. It's just a rediscovery of them, if that makes sense. So, yeah, I think you know, when I got to that section in, in the book where it talks about, you know, you have to make sure that you are good before you can make sure that other folks are good. They talk about, you know, that's that. The, 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 the hike to the top of Mount Struggle, mm -hmm. the, the real key is coming back down and helping the others along the way. Uh, but you know, going back to what you were saying about, you know, you gotta be able to take care of yourself. The thing that popped into my head was that's almost the antithesis of the things that we were taught in terms of like ship, shipmate self or mm -hmm. weapon gear self. You know, self was always last mm -hmm. in all of those items. So I think there's an element of like, we have to kind of get out of that mindset a little bit that there are times where, you know, that weapon uh, is you, mm -hmm. they have to make that change. I did get Absolutely. one question uh, okay. from Ian. Okay. Uh, he said, uh, veterans who've retired from active duty have a tendency to downplay new stressors from civilian life because they think the stakes aren't as high or something to that effect. If that's the case, how can veterans best process these new stressors and are there any post-retirement stressors that you've commonly encountered that can contribute to the dangerous buildup that you've described? Um, good question. Um, you know, I mean, it, it is different. So I, what I would say, and this is right, my own experience is, is when, I, when I retired, it took me probably six years to feel comfortable back in the civilian world again. And it's everything from things move at a different pace, um, you know, lines of authority uh, and jobs are not uh, as 
straight lined, for lack of a better way to put it. I mean, you may have three or four bosses that you're dealing with out there instead of, you know, just one chain of command, if you will. Um, you know, there is, uh, you know, just a lot of, of shifts that you don't anticipate. And, you know, those are taking on differently by everybody, right, depending on what their situation is. So, um, you know, in dealing with those, and some of it is, you know, am I able to get a job? I mean, I actually, uh, you know, kind of a, a personal experience of this when I was looking at employment, um, I actually, and I didn't find this out until really till years later, uh, that I wasn't accepted into a job or I wasn't interviewed because there was the thought process because I was a veteran that I had PTSD and that they, they didn't want to deal with that within this company. Right. So, so there's those kind of underlying things, I think, uh, that, that exist out there. I'm not sure that <laughs> answers Ian's question or not. But. Well, I, I think the big thing is, is everybody's struggle is different. Mm -hmm. So it's that understanding that yes, the struggles or the stressors that you have now are different right. than the stressors that you had before. Right. You know, you know, once you retire, I'm no longer flying on goggles at night. Mm -hmm. So that stressor is gone, but I have a different stressor. And we kind of talked about it in the beginning where, you know, you can have two people in the same incident that will respond to it very differently, you know, because they have a different amount of spoons in their hand or their rucksack is filled differently, or they have different training to be able to deal with, you know, whatever that stressor is. So I think that would be the big piece is, you know, understanding that just because it seems like it's not as high stakes as it was, doesn't mean that it's not an important stress for you to deal with. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, the stress could be just, you know, how is it that I continue doing what this job is? How do I deal with just the, the change and the shift in environment or culture that is there? I mean, that in and of itself is a lot of stress. Um, you know, how am I going to be able to continue to, to feed my family the way or live, you know, the way we expect to uh, hopefully be able to live and those kind of things. So yeah, the, the stresses a lot of times are different. Uh, but the interesting thing about stress is if you're stressed out about something, the weight of it, you know, whether is, is no different depending on how long you hold it, right? Cause the longer you hold any stress, whatever it is, is just uh, as debilitating as, you know, something that's heavy that you only carry for a short time. Uh, one of the questions we got from Albert, uh, he said, how have improvements in medical understanding of some of these stressors? Uh, changed or evolved the care or support from a campaign like this. Uh, he specifically brings up a New York Times story that came out over the weekend, uh, which I saw the headline for, mm -hmm. but didn't get a chance to read. But uh, basically, artillery uh, mm -hmm. Marines in Iraq and Syria yes. uh, suffering from TBI, you know, just from being on the gun line, mm -hmm. basically. Right. So, um, I mean, there, there are... Uh, discoveries being made all the time. And this is actually, I mean, just some of these discoveries is the, uh, what I was referring to earlier, where understanding that, you know, when you're talking about somebody's mental health that it, it, or like PTSD, that it's not just about uh, what's going on in your head. It's also about the things that are affecting your body because the things going on in your mind are down through the vagus nerve and into your system, right? Because it's, it's not just telling your system what to do, but it's telling it how to do it, right? Raising your heart rate, whatever it is. So there's effects that go through there. Um, but I, I actually have read that article and um, yeah, just the, the effects 
of, of the TBI um, and what that amount of rounds being around that type of concussion stuff. Um, are there, are we learning every day from it? Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's medical centers out there uh, devoted to TBI that are looking at this kind of thing on a, on a regular basis. Um, the, the big thing is, is, you know, if that's what the, the issue is, is to get, get them in, have them seen, you know, uh, and being willing to maybe let them go out of the town to one of these, uh, you know, medical centers that is specifically dedicated towards just the study of TBI. Uh, one of those would be like the, the Marcus Brain Institute in Colorado, right? There's, there's a lot of them out there, but they're really in a lot of ways leading the effort with regard to how we deal with TBI, ways to go through and to mitigate um, some of those things that those Marines may be going through. And I think to take it away from our military to look too, I think we're seeing the same mm -hmm. thing with the NFL and the NHL mm -hmm. in terms of TBIs and CTE and how those effects of constant blows to the head can mm -hmm. affect folks uh, well after they're done with, you know, whatever their career happens to be. Oh yeah, it's it's a it's a lifelong effect that happens, right? So a lot of it gets into um, the basically how do you you mitigate the the damage that has been done and that damage continuing to occur, right? right. Uh, so for a program like Warrior Path, how would a person uh, like get into a program like yours? Um, so I mean, there's. Uh, several different websites out there that they can go through and they can actually put in an application for it um, to be able to go through those. Uh, and, you know, that's really the simplest way to do it. You can go in and you can Google Warrior Path. It's two, two H's. <laughs> um, but that is uh, um, just the easiest way to go through it and find out what that is. There's a, basically a, a short application in there. They ask for DD-214 or what's the basic proof of surface uh, that is in there, but that's how they go through and do that. So so we had somebody ask, you know, what are the, what are the ancient warrior practices? So, I mean, there, there's a lot of them, um, not to go you know, too, too far into it. I mean, some of them are gonna be familiar with people, right? Everything from breathing, right? There are um, different types of breathing that you can do for different types of situations. Um, you know, one of them that we uh, like and teach is called a four, seven, eight. And what, basically what that means is you inhale for four seconds or a four second count. You, you hold it for a seven second count and you release it for eight seconds. It does a couple of things. Uh, one is, is, so as you inhale, it raises your heart rate. Then you hold for a count of seven. That allows for a, a longer oxygen exchange. And then you exhale for eight, uh, count of eight. Right, so doubling the amount of time that you exhale, which does two things. Um, one is that allows your heart rate uh, to drop for an additional four seconds, because as you exhale, your heart rate drops. Um, but what it also does is by having your exhale longer than your inhale, it begins to activate what's known as the relaxation response. And it's one of the only ways that we can go through and do this. So that's, that's one of the things, but it can, the other, you know, practices that may be out there, it's everything from, you know, maybe some type of journaling of what that looks like. Uh, you know, one of the, the big ones we see is just different ways in order to release stress. Um, the labyrinth is a is one of the big ones that we do. I don't want to give too much away about that, but it was one of the big places that it was uh, used with, with ancient Greeks, but we find them all over the world. 
uh, you know, there are ones uh, Native Americans in Arizona to uh, ones that uh, the Vikings walked in Crete. And you also see them in cathedrals, right, in, in Europe and those kind of places. But when you don't want to understand how to walk a labyrinth correctly, um, what you can release uh, there, understanding that when you walk, when it's not the same as a maze. Maze is a puzzle, has multiple entrances, exits. Uh, a labyrinth has one, one entrance, one exit, same thing. It's about the journey inward and slowing yourself down to get to the center and then coming back out again. And so that's uh, some of the warrior practices. And, it, you know, it's also looking at, you know, what is it like to actually stop your walk in nature and take appreciation for it? Um, those, uh, that's one of the uh, tech, uh, practices that is out there. So not to, we actually teach 31 um, uh, within PATH. Uh, it's similar in the Strober Well program. And it's not that we expect anybody to do right all 31. The whole intent is is for you to find the ones that work for you. Um, and you know, it's not even that you have to do uh, the ones that we necessarily teach. But find something that works, right? Meditation is one of them. That warriors have been doing meditations throughout history. Um, there's a lot of different ways to do that, and uh, and what it looks like. So, just those are just a few examples of uh, of what that looks like. Yeah, I think that the different techniques piece, you know, when you're teaching somebody to be an instructor, you know, I might have a very specific way that I do things, but if I have to teach somebody a technical skill, you know, depending on the way that you learn, you know, the way that I do it might not work for you. And I don't need to know every technique on doing that thing. But if I can say, hey, you know, I know so and so does this technique this way, and that might work for you. Yeah, that's usually what I tried to teach instructors was, you know, know your way, know your way very well, but know other people's way too, so that when you see a student struggling, uh, and that's kind of the thing that came to my mind when it was like, yeah, we've got these, all these techniques, but you can't know all of them. They can't all work for you because everybody is, is different. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's it, right? It's about choice because, you know, one of the things, um, when you begin to look at people who have gone through traumatic uh, situations or, you know, may still be in that fight or flight mode, one of the biggest things for them is to is to have a choice, right? Because they didn't have a most likely didn't have a choice about the traumatic situation or the stress it is that they're going through. And so having the choice of like, OK, that didn't work for me, but this does. And that's fantastic. I don't care. Just do something that is relieving stress um, uh, with regard to your system. and. Uh, there, there's uh, actually some study out there that shows uh, when you go through and you activate the relaxation response, right? And it can be done a lot of different ways. And if you just do that for 20 minutes a day um, and activate that response, it actually will out add longevity to your life because that is a way for you to, to go through and uh, release that stress and, and other things. I won't, I won't go too far down the whole thing about how it grows. Uh, telomeres on the end of your DNA and those kind of things, but yeah, it's it's pretty uh pretty phenomenal, particularly because it's that simple. Uh, so when we talk about breathing techniques and meditation, mm -hmm. I know there's a lot of folks out there that are yeah. skeptical about those types of techniques because right. you know, it doesn't work for them, so it can't mm -hmm. work for anybody else. Right. Do you have a lot of skeptics based on the program, and how do you deal with people like that? Uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, one of them is we let them know, you know, first and foremost. I mean, it, it is it's a 
warrior practice. If you look across multiple different uh, warrior um, cultures, if you will, they all had uh, some type of meditation that they did, whatever that may be. You know, whether it was a breathing meditation, a mantra meditation, whatever it is. And so, really, it's just getting about it. You know, you know, are you open to learning this and at least giving it a shot, trying it out, and what, you, what we find is that a lot of times when you get to somebody at that point um, and they're open about, uh, open-minded about it, that they actually discover that this really works, right? That, it, that things happen. And, and part of it is too, is understanding that, you know, there are some things that uh, take a little bit of time in order to be able to see the, the benefit of it. You know, I know for me, meditation, one of the biggest things, it's not the actual um, like experience in the meditation, um, because you actually don't have to be relaxed in meditation for it to work. A lot of people think that you have to be, but it's the, the grace afterwards, my ability to respond to things versus reacting to things afterwards that, that I've gone through that and done that. So we have a question in the chat here. It says, uh, so the younger generation of Marines have grown up with a larger emphasis on mental health. Uh, do you see foresee challenges for them with older Marines who have been conditioned to see getting help for mental health as weak? And if these younger Marines try to implement self-care practices for themselves and their Marines? Uh, yes, yeah, certainly there's an aspect to that, right? Uh, and that's why having uh, education and training across the board at all levels and letting them begin to experience it, uh, I think would help to mitigate that. Uh, you know, there's no... No doubt you're going to see some of that, but does that mean we shouldn't do it, right? Because uh, I know that I've had people who have actually gone through the course who were skeptical. Uh, there was, there were, we had one particular student uh, after she left, it was like, you know, I, I'm skeptical about this and didn't do any of the, the practices, right? You have to do the practice. You have to put the work in order for it uh, to work. Well, her kids were like, hey, didn't you just go to this course in order to, to help with all this stuff? And they finally talked to her enough. She's like, fine, I'm going to go do this just to prove you wrong. And all of a sudden it worked. And now her life is completely different because she went through and, and did that. So, you know, it, it really just depends. I don't know if that kind of, if that helps to explain or not. I think it does. I think this goes to a different conversation that I've had mm. with people about just connecting with younger Marines in general. Right. You know, I equate it a lot to, you know, my generation and older grew up in a world where we didn't have the internet. Mm. So our focus on, you know, YouTube and TikTok and all these kinds sure. of things, like our attitude towards the internet and technology in general is very different than folks who grew up with a smartphone in their mm -hmm. hand, basically, and have been doing this stuff their whole life. Right. It's kind of a different attitude. And I think, you know, to Nick's question about, you know, the, the mental health aspect of it, you know, and teaching a younger generation that mental health is important. I think for the older Marines, there's a level of empathy that they lack mm -hmm. if they don't have an understanding of what those Marines are going through. And in order to be a better leader, they need to be more have more empathy for those Marines. Cause I, I think there's a level of your unit will be better if everybody is taken mm -hmm. care of. And we've got a lot of, not just mental health, but we've got a lot of programs across the Marine Corps that are aimed at making the, the individual Marine better. 
And I think people are mistaking that with individuality and they lack an understanding that taking care of the individual Marine means that your unit as a whole is going to be better because that individual Marine is going to have less issues mm. and they have more time with the unit. Yeah. Right. So, and you know, when, when you look at, so there's a study out there that shows, and this was for the army, but with any of these kind of studies, it can kind of be looked at across the board as being the same in each one of the services, uh, studying the army that you had 74% of, um, the people joining identified, uh, self-identified with at least one traumatic experience in their life, right? You had 60% who had two or more. So what we have to realize is that we have essentially three quarters of what is coming into the military already has uh, at least one traumatic experience that they've got coming in. And so, you know, what is it that we're doing to, to set the baseline and to, and to look at all this, um, and, you know, as you, as we begin to look at this, um, and, you know, kind of to your point, and you begin to, I think, allude to it, is when you put things like this in place, um, what you're really creating is the ability for people to um, stay in longer, right? So you're talking about, you, you got less first-term attrition, you're going to have people that are mentally more fit to be able to do what it is, which means that they can serve longer uh, potentially and so it benefits the entire organization to be able to go through and do this and to have this basically really a changing culture and attitude with regard to what mental fitness is and how we go through and tackle it um, which is really i think where we need to get to because there's gonna you will see that shift because i mean i think they're correct you, you know you've got people coming in who were much more aware of what mental health and mental wellness are and are willing to look at those um, maybe a greater depth than people who have come in previously. Yeah, I think the big thing would be is hopefully those individuals can, I don't want to say gut it out because that sounds right. bad, but hopefully right. they can, you know, we put in some programs that allow those people to stay mm -hmm. so that they become the senior leadership. Right. So then that empathy exists, a better understanding of how it is. I, I think we slowly, you know, we saw that with PTSD, mm -hmm. you know, 2003, 2004, you had PTSD, yeah. like you were done. Right. And now it's a much different attitude than what, what it was 20 years ago. Yeah. But I, I think some of it would also be just grassroots because it, it's how the programs that we're talking about right now grew, right? As it was all grass, a, uh, well, a grassroots effort. You know, when I see my buddy who I know was struggling, right, who was dealing with a lot of stress and all of a sudden he's coming back and he's a different person, I'm going, okay, well, what, what just happened? And the only thing that I can say is, okay, well, he, he received this training and is doing these practices. I now want some of that. So I think you will begin to see those things. I mean, it could be something as simple as, you know what, maybe there's less people going in to see the first sergeant. Uh, you know, maybe there's less people going in to, to do different things and leadership is potentially not seeing the issues that they were having to deal with before because they're, they're being taken care of at a lower level. I mean, there's, a, there's always going to be people, right, who, who need uh, the therapist or to go see the chaplain or those things. But if we can lessen that because we've taught people how to take care of themselves, right, um, 
and to be able to get rid of those stress and to be able to and continue to grow their strength and capacity, um, you know, how much better organization are we going to be? Because what you're talking about then is, you know, people who are making more sound decisions, they're more focused about what it is they're doing. Because when you're in that fight or flight mode, which people can be in that for years, right? If they, if they're not dealing with all this stuff, um, when you're in that fight or flight mode, you, you actually become tunnel vision. It's harder to have focus because you're, you're always in a threat mode and everything is catching your attention. You're not able to, to look at that. So what kind of decisions are people making when they're in that type of, uh, of mindset also? So. Uh, we did have one question here in the room with us. Yes. Uh, one of the things about optimizing human performance, uh, uh, I'll go back to recruit training. Uh, coming into a service, you, you, that's an incredibly stressful period. And then I remember um, you talked a little bit earlier about how these things are already part of our culture. And I remember going to the, the chapel. I wasn't a guy that went to church, but mm -hmm. I tell you, when I went to the chapel and I swung my dog tags around, you know, saying I'll fly away, it was an incredible release mm -hmm. for me to take on the next week. And then I look forward to going to the chapel the, the following week. So I say all that to say, um, as I got up in the Marine Corps leadership realm, one of the things that I saw was a lot of leaders didn't know how to be vulnerable mm. so that they can showcase how to be resilient. You know, it, we went from a zero defect mentality back when I came in uh, in the early 90s to the, now it's okay to say, hey, I used to make mistakes and this is what I did from the mistake. So from a stress uh, or struggling well point, what are some of the uh, examples or do you think it is a critical leadership skill to have the ability to showcase vulnerability to a certain degree as a leader? Uh, would that make you a better leader? Yeah, I mean, I think in in certain cases it would, right? Being able to say that you're 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 struggling with something, right? And you have to look at like where the group is that you're doing it in, in the context. Right. So, you know, to uh, to necessarily as a you know, a, depending on what your rank is as a leader, then going and talk to uh, uh, maybe a junior group that might not be the best case uh, to do it. But I think people have got to find a way to be able to do that within the right context and within the right groups, um, you know, because I know, you know, for us, that's one of the, the big things within our courses um, and with any of the courses that we don't ask the people who are there to do anything that we haven't done or won't do right in front of them. Mm -hmm. And so we're very vulnerable about our story now, but you're also in a very uh, safe environment mm -hmm. to be able to do that but it's it's critical to be able to do that at times so um you know having the correct environment and whatever that is um i think would be beneficial but yeah i think uh because now you're more self-aware right with what it is that you're doing and you, you actually brought up resiliency and i wanted to kind of make a, a quick point about this so when we talk about post-traumatic growth right mm -hmm. it's different than res being resilient um Resiliency is a fantastic thing, but uh, post-traumatic growth is transformational. And so here's kind of what I mean by that is if you take the analogy of a boxer, 
right? Um, the ability for uh, somebody to take a punch and get back up, it, that's resilience, mm-hmm. right? Post-traumatic growth is, is then what I'm now doing is, is taking that boxer and showing them how to bomb and to weave and to get stronger and to do those things so that next time the punch is in a direct shot on the jaw, maybe it's a glancing or whatever it is, or they're able to, to completely get out of the way. So that's hopefully that kind of, yeah, the, that kind of fits a little bit clearer. Yeah, yeah. Everything's connected. Right. right. Intersectionality. Yeah. yeah. So, but thank yeah. you. That definitely. Yeah. I brought, I wrote down the exposure versus disclosure. So that element you talked about, you know, everything that mm-hmm. we do in your program, you do it first because that's disclosure. So the things that you've shared with us here, and we didn't ask you to share that, you were able to disclose it yourself. You know, but if you put someone on the spot, that's exposure. And that's kind mm-hmm. of a, a negative way to do it because you're sort of forcing that person to answer a question that they might not be ready to answer almost. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, you definitely have to be in the right place. Uh, with regard to your growth to be able to do like to have those kind of discussions putting us all and if you look at trauma right if you're asking somebody to talk about their trauma and they're not there yet what you're doing is re-traumatizing them uh plain and simple i mean if people can be traumatized by single words they can be they're like re-traumatized by a smell uh, by a location uh, and this is all stuff that, that is being learned and, and understood. And it, it's amazing because when you begin to understand some of this, when you, when you know somebody is going through something and you're kind of looking at them going, well, why did they just do that? And you begin to ask the right questions and, and maybe know what it is that they're going through. It begins to make sense. Right. So, uh, so we're coming up on the end of our hour. The mm-hmm. last question I do have mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, we've talked about your, a lot of stuff working with uh, veterans, folks who are out already, but we've also mentioned, hey, we need to make sure that we institute programs and techniques mm-hmm. and ways to help those who are active now. Uh, are Warrior Path or other organizations like Warrior Path mm-hmm. doing things with the active force to help them improve their programs? Uh, yes. So, I mean, there, there are organizations out there um, that one of the programs actually is Struggle Well, where we are uh, trying to help active duty. I mean, that uh, is one of the reasons I think for, for this discussion is, okay, how do, we, how do we go through? I've seen this work. Um, I, I have been out for about 10 years now, I've worked with veterans in some form or fashion, you know, specifically with regard to this for over three years now, and I keep seeing the same stuff, right? The same things that are out there. So how is it, what can we put in place? to not only help people during their time of service to help create, you know, longer first term retention or just retention in general um, to, you know, the longevity of somebody's service where they're able to do that to, you know, when they get out that they can actually have a great life. One where they're struggling well and not struggling because there's a lot of veterans out there who are, are struggling hard. Um, and it, you know, when you begin to look at it, the whatever uh, the numbers are with regard to those actively serving who taken their own life, um, when you look at that over the course of a you know a year, right, 365 days, out in the civilian world with regard to veterans, 
that's happening, that same number is happening within usually about 17 or less days, right? So knowing and understanding that we've lost veterans to taking their own life at three times the amount of what we lost in both Iraq and Afghanistan, right? We're over 30,000 now. So this is not just about helping them during their time of service, because you're going to be able to take all that knowledge with them, right? When they leave and continue those practices and the knowledge. And what we know is that a, a, somebody who's been through this training, their courses, they have the ability to, or they do positively affect up to 500 people within their sphere of their sphere of influence. So think about the, what that means, you know, with regard to, to pushing this out and also taking care of the people who have already served our country and protecting us. Yeah, I think I've always had a, a firm belief that, you know, we, we take a lot of 17, 18 year old kids, mm -hmm. we bring them into the military, we train them to be war fighters. And then we sort of, when they get out, they're just out. You know, maybe they go to TAPS or whatever it was called when they got out. Uh, but I, you know, I firmly believe that while they're in, we should make them better citizens so that when they get out, you know, we hopefully put back into society something better than what we, we took in almost. Um, so we have a few more minutes uh, left, sir. I did want to give you the opportunity to make any closing comments. Um, you know, I, mean, I think really the, the biggest thing is, is just continuing the discussion and what it is that we really mean by, by mental fitness, right? How can we go through and improve that and begin to put the things in place that become as ingrained within, you know, the Marine Corps as something like physical fitness um, and PME, whatever it may be, in order to uh, allow people to grow and to thrive and to do those things so that we're we're seeing less people taking their lives. We're seeing less people with this, you know, essentially catastrophic stress whenever they get out, uh, whatever it is that happens. So um, that's the hope. Um, and uh, we really, really like to see things go, I think. Uh, so, sir, thank you very much for taking thank the time you. to come down and, and talk with us today. I enjoyed the conversation and your insight. Um, thank you to all the folks who have joined us uh, today in the chat and uh, here in the Kulak Center as well. Um, that's all we have for this episode, so go ahead and carry out the plan of the day. Remember, your struggle is unique to you, but you are not alone. In the episode show notes, you'll find suggestions for books, videos, websites to give you a place to start or continue depending on where you are in your journey. Asking for help is not a weakness. And this is not a battle you have to fight yourself. Thanks for joining us. As always, we depend on support and feedback from the Team Krulak community to constantly improve our offerings and reach a wider audience. So if you have feedback on this episode, please take a moment to fill out the survey linked in the show notes to help us do better. Also, if you have enjoyed this episode, please hit the like button and subscribe to our channel on YouTube or leave us a review on the podcast app of your choice. It truly does help us reach a wider audience. Thank you as always for your support, and we'll see you on the next episode. Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected.